0: of the world by dawn.
1: of christ alone that we are here today it is good to see you and before you are seated uh, turn around and just greet those who are around you in the lord It is good to see you here this morning. My name is Gary, and I'll be your noun today. And if you don't know what that was about, you uh, would have missed uh, last Sunday. I want to call your attention to a few of the announcements that are in your bulletin. Please take the time in, uh, to, to read those later today. Uh, first of all, just to have you uh, uh, be aware and remind you that uh, nominations for uh, elders, deacons, and women's ministry team committees are are, uh, are in your bulletin and uh, those will be due next, uh, next Sunday. So please prayerfully consider the biblical qualifications uh, and uh, prayerfully fill out those forms and then submit them in the back of the church. Or get them to us by next Sunday. Also, next Sunday, Operation Christmas Child shoe boxes are due. Uh, that is a big part of our uh, church historically, so be aware of that. A couple of more, an, a couple more announcements. One is that the men's chili cook cookoff uh, is in the SNBC parking lot. For some reason, all the men want to hold that outside. I don't understand why, but it'll be 6:30 uh, this coming Thursday. And if and please, if you have not signed up, the sign-up sheet is in the foyer, or email our adverb. Uh, please be aware of the uh, Isaiah 117 house fundraiser. If you have any questions about that, uh, uh, contact uh, BJ. And uh, if, if you're new to the, to the church, there is a QR code. Uh, at the bottom of the in the bulletin, and you can scan that. And also let us know a little bit about about you. Now, uh, after we after our song service, before the children are dismissed to children's church, uh, there's going to be a brief uh, video. So we'll have them stay in for that. And then uh, Lewis will come up and he'll dismiss the uh, the children. Uh, but first of all, I want to ask our veterans who have served our country in various military services, would you please stand where you are? Please, veterans, please stand. up oh, and stay up, stay up. Yep, oh, all right. Thank you very much. We appreciate you and we thank the Lord uh, for you. Um, and one, one final thing before Damon comes up for uh, an announcement. Betsy and I want to thank you, our church family, for uh, your sweet love. The service for Betsy's mom was yesterday, and uh, your tangible help over these weeks have, have been a testimony to our family. Uh, and we appreciate that. And that testimony continues. We are beginning another medical journey tomorrow morning. And uh, so many of you have contacted us to help and said you wanted to help in various ways. So we just want you to know, we love you, and we appreciate uh, your love, and we appreciate your prayers. Thank you. And uh, Damon? Oh Oh Edward's in the back.
0: Good morning. Please stand with us for the call to worship. It comes from Psalm 19, which is a psalm of David. We'll read these verses together. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. They have no speech. They use no words. No sound is heard from them, yet their voice goes out into all the earth, their words to the ends of the world. In a world full of voices vying for our attention, it's sometimes easy to miss these silent voices of nature. The worldly voices of our culture seem relentless and inescapable, but they are no more so than the heavens. David says the heavens speak all the time, day and night and everywhere, even to the ends of the world, as they teach us of the glory and majesty of our God. And this is all part of God's design. As we see the order and the structure and complexity and creativity in nature, he's communicating to us and revealing his beauty to us. So we respond with worship. So I just ask if you continue to do that with us this morning. Glorious and mighty. Verses later in Psalm 19, David switches from his observations about, of God's uh, voice in nature to his observations about his voice in his written word. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. And then would you read with me? They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They are sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. By them your servant is warned. In keeping them there is great reward. your kids here until Lewis dismisses them in a little while. You may be seated.
2: Just wanted to, today is Orphan Sunday, if you didn't know, and we just wanted to draw some awareness uh, to the reality that we live in a world where there are children who need homes. Uh, Eight years ago today, or not today, but eight years ago, God brought a special little girl into our life in foster care, and I just wanted to thank you publicly, um, just by the way that you all loved us through that process and have loved our daughter through that process. And just make awareness um, that we are a place historically that has wel- that have welcomed children. You all have been very generous. And even if you haven't been the home that's actually brought a child into, your, into the home, your love and generosity is surrounding those families who have. And so we want that culture to continue to grow in our midst and in our church. And so just today, just wanted to bring awareness. Thank you all uh, for what you have meant to us and what you've meant to our daughter, Flannery. And just would encourage you to, to pray, uh, pray for those families who are stepping up and pray that and ask the Lord whether you may be a family that God may want to bring, uh, may want to complete your family in a non-traditional way uh, at some time. So thank you all, church. Children, you're dismissed.
3: Good morning. <clears throat> it's always hard to follow something like that. <laughs> Just a wonderful uh, testimonial. <clears throat> I want to, uh, before I read the scripture this morning, I want to uh, emphasize something that Gary already reminded us of about elder and deacon nominations, and also for suggestions for the women's uh, team. Uh, During the COVID pandemic and for some time after that, when we were getting wound up on the one family ministry with uh, Damon's great uh, leadership of that, uh, the deacons in particular kind of got lost in the noise. And some people have said, well, what do the deacons really do? What what have they been doing and what do they do? And my, my thoughts wandered back to the time we were at Bachman and I was a deacon along with several other guys and we used to argue about who was gonna get up at six in the morning to make sure the boiler was working uh, on Sunday morning. And I can assure you that those days are past us or at least I hope so. Uh, But when we talk about deacons, they really do take care of the physical needs of the church whether that's by direct involvement or securing the, the resources that we need to take care of those things. And as a part of the one-family ministry, they will be really taking over part of what Damon has been doing to find resources to take care of things like setting up the pavilion and needs for particular families that run into an emergency need of some kind. It does not mean that the deacons are going to do that all by themselves, but with the resources of the volunteers that uh, Damon was soliciting with his uh, thing that he sent out to sign up for different parts of activity within the church, The deacons uh, for that will be pretty much the leaders of the leaders of men in the church uh, to coordinate those events and take charge and make sure they they happen. So uh, again, um, I would ask you, as Gary said, prayerfully consider men that you would like to nominate for both deacon and elder, uh, keeping in mind that the elders have to have been a member of the church for at least a year. Uh, Deacons have to be a member of the church, but do not have to have... Uh, long-term membership so I just want to add those thoughts and we would really highly encourage you to fill out those forms turn them in in the box or if uh, you want to do it at home you could uh, call me or call Lewis or or bring them by the church because we uh, we really do uh, want to honor God in the process of the way we run this church thank you Uh, scripture this morning is from the book of James And it is James chapter 2, 14 through 26. If you want to turn there and follow along, I would welcome you to do that. What what use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, yet do not give them what is necessary for, that for their body. What use is that? In the same way, faith also, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one and you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to acknowledge you foolish person that faith without works is useless? Was our father Abraham not justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says, "'And Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God.' You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was Rahab the harlot not justified by works also when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For just as the body without spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. May God bless the hearing and reading of his word. Would you pray with me, please? Dear Holy God, you truly are majestic and mighty. I rejoice in your provision for us, Lord, your patience with us and your mercy. We know your truth as it is so evident in all of your word. And yet like I and many of us stumble when we're surrounded and distracted by the worldly things around us in this day and age. The recent elections come to mind and also Veterans Day, where we honor people who have served so well to keep our country safe at this point. But dear God, I cry out to you for revival in this country. May this country be protected. Our country was conceived in a liberty born of freedom through biblical principles, and yet now we flounder. I pray fervently this morning for a reawakening in the hearts and minds of our citizens. And I pray for our leaders at the federal, state and local level to recognize your authority, your sovereignty, that they would submit to you for wisdom and guidance. Only through obedience to you, to your will, can we make good choices that honor you. Dear Lord, I pray for revival in this great country, that we would love you, love one another as you have commanded and led us to do. Oh dear God, our hearts long for you. Our minds seek your wisdom. Plant within us Paul's words in Colossians to set your minds on things above, not on things that are on earth. This morning, Lord, we also want to petition for many of our needs in the church, through our church family, and ask for your intervention and support and healing touch. I lift up Roger Thomas, Bob Walter, Faye Johnston, Hannah Rogers, Josh Davis's mom, Floyd Ann, Dawn Rowell, and Betsy Phillips as they and their families deal with health issues. Please bestow your health, healing powers and comfort for them. We also ask your grace and wisdom for those who are strength, struggling with financial, emotional, and spiritual needs and family relationships in our church. Lord, I pray the Holy Spirit will guide Lewis this morning as he increases our knowledge and understanding of your word and application I ask that the Spirit speak to us through him so that we can apply the messages to our service to you and our fellow man. I pray these things in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.
2: Romans Ten nine tells us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Maybe one that's a little more familiar is John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that whoever believes in him shall not. Whoever God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son. <laughs> you should get this one right that whoever believes in him should not perish but what have eternal life in Ephesians 2 by grace you have been saved through faith not a result of what works so that no man may boast these are scriptures these are passages that we use when we're sharing the good news about Jesus Christ that we use these passages In evangelism, in hopes that God would open the eyes of men and women and children's hearts and that they would be saved. And we believe these words and we stand on these words. And so then there's a question. (laughs) There's a natural question that Barrett wants to answer this morning. A lot of times when you're sharing the gospel with someone and you're sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, that you can have a relationship with God, that you can be reconciled to God through faith. One of the natural questions that arise. Is that it? I mean, I just confess and believe and that's it. Maybe I can be baptized and that's it. Maybe I can join the church and that's it. How would you answer that this morning? Many years ago, many, many years ago, uh, Casey and I held a Bible study at our home, and um, there was an unlikely visitor, because we were all in our 20s, and this man was really, really old. He was about 40. (laughs) And uh, um, I'll never forget, the Bible study was on... Uh, was really on the grace and the mercy and the love of God. And that how we were sinners and and even though that we were sinners and there was nothing good that we could do to earn our way to him, to earn our salvation, to earn our love of him, that God and his mercy and his grace loved us. And, And as an example, one of the things that I said is that even as believers, even as believers, we can't even Do the fundamental right. You know, the greatest commandment of love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind and soul. That we never do that right. And so all of our works are sin. And I was talking about how good and gracious that God is, that he loves us in spite of ourselves. And I'll never forget this man was like, good. Good. Except he then followed up to talk about he had been having an affair. We knew that in the group. He was struggling with a legalistic background. He was struggling with the church. And he just wanted to go on and live life just like he wanted. And he heard my talking and my questioning and my discussing as a license to say, oh, so I can say that I believe in God and go on and live like I want to, because even in my best efforts, it's going to be sin anyway. Great. I'm just going to go on and live like the world. What would you say to that man? We all know that that's not right. We all know that there's something missing. James, as he's writing this, is writing to the early church, the first century church. He's writing, we think, to to Jewish believers who had come into the church and had professed belief in Christ. They were probably young in their faith. And he's teaching them how to live. How to walk in this world as believers. How to love one another. And James does something interesting that I've been doing. James puts a hypothetical man in a chair. Right? Look at verse 14. James has a man in a chair and he says this. Notice the hypothetical question. What use is it, my brethren, if someone... Hypothetically, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works, can that faith save him? Notice in even asking the question, he's not saying, can someone say, look, I have faith, but don't have works. Can that faith save him? Even in setting up the question, James is careful. This person says that he has faith, professes that he has faith, but has No works. What do we say about this man? The problem is he says that he has faith. But the idea that we learned about all throughout the book of Mark of pick up your cross, deny yourself, pick up your cross and follow me. The way that Christ told us that we live out our faith. This man is saying, no, thank you. No, thank you. I just profess my faith. I don't live it out. Don't forget, as we've been going along in the book of James and looking at this great letter, that one of the things that we've talked about over and over is that as James is writing, that James is the book of James is really wisdom literature. James is telling us how to live. And remember, one of the things that we keep repeating is that there's not a third way. That James, as he is telling us about the way that honors the Lord, the way that we should be walking as Christians, that there are two paths, there's not that straddling of the fence. And, and as we've been looking at this and as we've been laboring through this book, we know and we can recall to mind that James taught, has taught us things like how do Christians suffer? How do Christians deal with temptation? Where do Christians go when they need wisdom? He has taught us that we are to be doers of the word and not merely hearers. He's taught us in verse twenty seven of chapter one, that pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is to visit orphans and widows in distress, that we are to look out for the marginalized in our society. We are to be a people of love, and two weeks ago we talked about that there should be no partiality in the church. And that we of people of the Lord should be people that are full of mercy. And that we are merciful towards others because we have been shown such mercy. And so what do we do with the guy in the chair that professes to be a believer and none of those things exist in his life? He has no concern for his neighbor. His life exists to please himself. Will that save him? Maybe when the bottom falls out of his life, he doesn't run to God. He doesn't lean on the words and the comfort that we find in in God our Father and in Jesus, the one that made our life in God the Father possible. He doesn't lean on that. He leans on the world and its wisdom. Will his faith save him? I want to pause for a moment here. Because I know for some of you this morning, I have just turned up the anxiety dial. For, for many of you, you live life in this stance, in this posture of not ever feeling good enough. And so when we talk about this, when, when, maybe even when the passage was read, that, that some of you are already asking the question, am I good enough? Some of you begin to look around the room and compare yourself to other people. And as you look around the room, you're saying, oh, man, I don't have the faith of so and so. Man, I don't do half the works of so and so. is is this word saying that I'm not a believer? Do I have no works? Am I not saved? And one of the things that I want to say to you this morning before we continue in our sermon is this. This is not James is not asking the question or answering the question, are you good enough? James is not answering the question, how much works? <laughs> James's hypothetical question is along the lines of a man who says he has no faith, but has no works. Because the reality that we live in and that we know and that I want to ring true because it is the truth is that the point of the gospel is that you can't be good enough. If you could earn your way to salvation, there's no need for the cross, there's no need for the sacrifice, that you could make it on your own. And so our response as a Christian, our response as a Christian is that we wake up. We look to Christ. We look to the path that He's laid out before us. And we journey down that road. And we fail. And we stumble. And we don't do it good enough as we think in our own mind. But then we're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful for the cross. And we get back up the next day and we do it again. And it pleases the Lord. It pleases the Lord. When He sees us desiring and wanting to be like His Son. A few weeks ago in the midweek announcer, I addressed this idea. And I just want to say it again publicly. Because in a text like this, you can get bent out of shape. And the the, the evil one can create some confusion in you. And I just want to say this, and I think this is correct. And I want you to hear some pastoral love this morning to say, listen, if you're here this morning and you're doing this comparison thing or this I'm not good enough thing, I want you to hear that the fact that you want to be like Christ and don't think you're good enough is probably indicative of the Holy Spirit working in your heart because non-believers don't want to be like Christ. Non-believers don't want to follow the ways of Christ. That's why James can say a man who says he has faith but has no works, that faith doesn't save him. Now, unpause. (laughs) I love... How practical James is. I love the, these next verses that James really lays it out for us. Listen to how James sets this up. If a brother or sister, don't miss that. So if a brother or sister, if a fellow Christian is without clothing and in need of daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace and be warmed and be filled and yet do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that now? Now. James is not saying that we shouldn't be caring for our neighbor, people who aren't Christians. That's not what he's saying. I think what James is doing is that he's making this point. That there can be a brother or sister, there can be another Christian that's in your community and that you're coming in contact with, and they can come to you or it may be made known that they're they're cold or they're hungry, they're in need. And that you would utter, I'll be praying for you. I'll be praying for you. What use is that? Man, doesn't this cut? You know, it wasn't just two weeks ago. In chapter two, verse eight, that we read this, if, however, you are fulfilling the royal law, according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And we talked about that this royal law was the way of the kingdom. That it was the way of our King Jesus. And the way of our King Jesus is to love your neighbor as yourself. And so how in the world, if you are fulfilling the law of our king, if you are fulfilling the royal law, if that's the way that you are living, how in the world could you, when a brother or sister comes into the assembly and is in need, that you could say, I'll pray for you. Because by very essence, loving our neighbor as ourself, if you are hungry, what do you need? Food. If you are cold, what do you need clothing? And so the very essence of loving our neighbor as ourself is action, is doing things. Not empty, cold words. Think of verse 17. Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead being by itself. How do you think the world views the church? If we have brothers and sisters coming in that are in need and our response is. I'll pray for you, go in peace. Do they think that love is real? You see, we are saved by faith alone and here's the wording that we all probably know if you're familiar with this, but faith is never what? Alone. True, saving faith is never alone. There is always action that comes with faith. Faith changes us. Our works demonstrate or our evidence that their true faith has taken root in us. If you were to go to the moon this morning. And look around you would come back and you would tell us it's dead there. It's barren. There is no life. And I would say, how do you know? And you'd say, because I went and looked and there was no life. I almost did this with Mars, but some of you told me that there might be water on Mars, and so I'm not getting into that debate this morning. But certainly, if you went to the moon, it's barren. There's there's nothing there. There's no life. And that's what James is saying for us. If there are no works, there is no life. Life. Works are the evidence that the faith is real. And this is what is James is telling us in verse 18. But some may say, well, you have faith and I have works separating these two things. You show me your faith without works and I will show you my faith by my works. And I want you to think about something for a moment. How do we talk about salvation? Think about how we talk about salvation, and these are good and right ways to talk about salvation. I'm not I'm not tricking you this morning, but one of the ways that we talk about salvation often is that is that we've got a new heart that God took the heart of stone out of us and he gave us a a new heart. And what are we trying to communicate by that? We're trying to communicate that is that our affections have changed, that we're different. There's been a change that has occurred in the very center of our being and who we are and We would be crazy to think that that can happen with there not being action. In Second Corinthians, Paul writes that those who are in Christ Jesus are a new what? A new creation. All things have passed away and behold, all things are new that this salvation of which we sing, of which we boast in, it changes us. Another way that we talk about this, should talk about this, is that upon salvation, the Holy Spirit indwells of us, indwells us. And think about this. The presence of God, the Spirit of God, the Bible tells us, indwells us as believers. Do you think that the reason that the Spirit of God indwells us, the power that's there, The reality that we're a new creation, the reality that God has metaphorically taken a heart of stone and given us a heart that has new affections, that the result of all that is. I can spout some facts. I can spout some facts. Verse 19 has blown me away over the years. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. Many, many years ago, I heard a sermon on this passage. And this pastor said that the devil knows more facts about Jesus than you will ever know. Okay, I want to blow your mind a little bit more. Notice the first part of this passage. You believe that God is one. Do you recognize that that's a quote? This is a quote from Deuteronomy 6.4. The Shema. The Shema was a part of the Old Testament in Deuteronomy, which every good Jew would recite at least two times a day. This is the beginning of it. The Lord our God is one. What James is telling us is that the demons know the Bible verse. The demons know the Shema. The demons know the creed. And they shudder. They believe it, which leads me to a question, and I'm not getting into all of this this morning, but how much of the Apostles Creed do you think the demons believe? How much of the Nicene Creed do you think the demons believe? How much of the Bible? Do you think the demons believe? See, knowing facts is not the evidence of salvation. True faith is factual, right? Like we started off. Jesus is Lord. That is a fact. Jesus lived, he died, that is factual. He was buried, he was raised from the dead, he will come back, that is factual. Those are things that to be a believer that we believe, but, 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 but what James is pointing out is that just doing that lip service is not true faith. How we would say it in the the good southern context. Is it just because maybe you walked the aisle one Sunday or that you prayed a prayer with a preacher or that you were baptized or that you joined a church? If there was just a profession. And there's been no life change, there's not genuine faith. Now. As we read, as Spate read this this morning. There's some legitimate tension. Let me read some verses that should cause some tension to those of you that are theologically aware or maybe have read some of the works of Paul. Verse twenty, but are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless. Verse twenty-two, you see that faith was working with his works, and as a result, the works of the works, as a result of the works, his faith was perfected. Or verse twenty-four, this does not sound like Paul. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone man this has caused some controversy over the years i mean so much so that martin luther the great reformer had a hard time with the book of james he called it the epistle of straw i mean the whole idea of the protestant reformation which which changed the church Drastically, which this new movement was born, uh, some people summarize based upon five principles called the five solas, which in Latin means alone. And one of those bedrock principles is faith alone. Volumes and volumes written on this about faith alone. It is faith alone that brings about salvation. And you can't read Romans without walking away knowing, if you were with us as we studied Romans for a couple of years, That what Paul was laying out is that you are justified by faith alone. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a treatise on that you are saved by faith alone and that the works, they don't contribute at all. Or what about Ephesians 2? Not by works so that you won't boast. And so the question becomes, okay. is there attention? Do James and Paul disagree? And the answer to that is no. So let's move on. Just teasing. There are a couple of things that I want you to hear. First is this: James and Paul are answering two different questions. It's, it's very clear. James is answering the question, it's like we said in the beginning in verse 14. Can someone truly have faith and then live a life that has no demonstration of works? So is it possible that someone is truly saved, that someone is truly justified, that someone is truly a believer, but the way they live, there's no works to back that up? That's the question that James is asking, and he says, no, it's not possible. Paul was answering a different question in in all of those contexts. Contexts. Paul was answering the question. How can a sinful man be justified? In the presence of a holy God. And and for a holy God. Who is sinless and whose presence sin cannot exist, a man cannot be justified by works because he would never get there. That was why we needed Christ, that Christ paid our debt. Christ was perfectly righteous when we put our faith and trust in Him. He takes on our sin and we get His righteousness. Paul was asking a different question. and James is telling us, James and Paul agree, I feel like, on this point, because what James is simply stating is that a justified man A man who has been forgiven, a man who has truly trusted in Christ as his savior is so changed. So changed that he can't go on living as if nothing, nothing happened. Now, another reason that that they seem at odds is that I think it's pretty clear that James and Paul are using um, similar words, meaning different things. And, and I was reminded by someone a couple of weeks ago, that a good example of this is, this, this has never occurred in your house, has it? Where maybe you're, you're speaking to a child and you're speaking in this tone and they're saying, you're yelling at me. And then the argument becomes, I'm not yelling. Yes, you are yelling. Who's right? Well, you know, you can both be right. You can have different definitions of what yelling is. There's something a little bit similar to that going on. And the first thing that I want to point out is that Paul and James are using the word works differently. If you think about all of the examples, especially in Galatians and in Romans, where Paul is using the word works and he is battling against the idea that somebody can earn their salvation, he's talking about the ceremonial law. He's talking about things like circumcision and festivals and things like that. When James is talking about works. He's talking, he's using these type of words, remember from a couple weeks ago, the law of liberty. The law of freedom. And as we talked about that a couple of weeks ago, what we saw was he was talking about the way that Jesus taught, the way that Jesus embodied the law, and we talk about things like love and mercy. A way that's helped me think about this is that. To to help merge these two thoughts that I think are there. Is that when James talks about work, he's really talking about the fruit of the spirit. And obviously, when we put it in that context, we're like, oh, yeah, Paul agrees with that. I mean, in the book of Romans, Paul tells us that our sin nature is dead. Paul gives us list after list of a Christian should live like this and not like this. In the book of Ephesians, in, in chapter two, right after he says that um, we're saved by grace through faith, not as works, he tells us you were created for good works. And in the book of Galatians, Paul lays out what we now call the fruit of the spirit versus the fruit of the flesh. So Paul agrees but at these points when they are talking about this, They're using the word works a little bit differently, and they're also using the word justification differently. To be justified means to be made right or be declared right, to be declared not guilty. And this this is a judicial word, and so we think about uh, going into court. And so let's just think for a moment. Let's say that you've been accused of a crime. That you did not do. As you walk into the court, are you guilty? No. You're not guilty. And that what you're hoping for is the judge sees that you're not guilty and puts that stamp on you're justified. Now, when it comes to salvation, we're guilty. We take on Christ's righteousness. And therefore, positionally, God looks at us because of his son and says, not guilty. Right? You're justified, you're made right. Now, we all pretty much understand that use of justification. But here's the other way. Here's the way that James is using this word justification. When you go into that court and when you are under scrutiny for something, the court looks at evidence. And the court looks at the evidence and says, oh, look, there's evidence. Lewis is not guilty. They said the crime took place at 9.03 on Sunday morning and Lewis was at church and there's video of him that Bill sent from all the cameras around the church at 9.03. He couldn't have done the crime. He is innocent. In other words, you're vindicated. Your works, the evidence vindicates you. This is the way that James is using this word justification. So, 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 so. This is where the rubber meets the road. James and Paul don't disagree. They both very much line up and both say the same thing, and that is. If you have come in contact with the savior of the world. And if you have truly seen him for who he is and if you have placed your faith in Him and the work that He did on the cross, and if you have accepted Him as your Savior, if you've met this Lord, if you've met God and experienced His mercy and His love, you can't be the same. It changes you. James gives us two examples. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Now, what James is doing is he's quoting Genesis chapter 22 here, where Abraham, uh, and this is a whole long, big story, where Abraham, uh, that God had told him to take his son, his only son, Isaac, and to offer him as a sacrifice. And Abraham believed God, and he took Isaac, and then God made another way. Right? We remember this story. And, and, and it's it said that uh, in Jewish literature, that it was thought that Abraham had ten tests. There were the ten tests of Abraham that you can look at throughout the Old Testament. And this was the tenth that was showing how righteous and how holy Abraham was. Now, what's interesting here is that James points this out. He believed God. It was reckoning him as righteous. In verse 24, you see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. Oh, I'm sorry. Verse 22 You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of the works, his faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. What's interesting is, is that James puts verse 21 first, which was from Genesis chapter 22. And here in verse 23, this was the call on Abraham's life, which happened in Genesis 15. So some quick math and some trigonometry. 15 becomes before 22. So what we see is that Abraham was justified by his belief in God. And that was demonstrated throughout his life. And one of the biggest ways that we see his faith demonstrated was in his trust in God, even when it comes to the life of his son. His life was marked by obedience. And if any of you are thinking, oh man, I can never live up to the faith of Abraham. Abraham made a lot of mistakes as well. You can read about that in the book of Genesis. The second example is Rahab, which is fascinating to me. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them by another way? That these messengers from Israel had come in and they were spying out the land. And they were in danger of being captured and killed. And Rahab the harlot who lived in the walls lowered them out, sent them another way so that they would be saved. Demonstrated great faith and trust. This could have cost her her life. This could have cost her everything. But her belief in God was such that she performed this work. It took great faith to do that. And I love the idea that particularly in the Old Testament, women were marginalized and looked at as second class citizens. And not only that, but this woman was a prostitute. In several places in the Bible, it's been inked that Rahab is an example to us of her faith. She believed God. She trusted God. And because of that, her family was spared. Then we get this summary in verse 26. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Some of you this morning... This voice of this hypothetical man as James is laying out this question to this hypothetical man. Some of you this morning, there may be some here who said, Lewis, it's me. There was a time in my life where I professed faith, but there's been no fruit, no desire. And if that is you, I am more than happy. A member of the staff would be more than happy to talk with you, and I would pray that Christ would make himself known to you, and that God would open the eyes of your heart, and you would see Jesus as your Savior, and that today, even today, might be the day of your salvation. For a vast majority of us, I think this odd thing happens with this text is that this voice that says, I can have faith but no works, that, that we, we hear this voice inside of us. And at times it paralyzes us. When we were on vacation many years ago, uh, we were at a place that, where everybody drove around on golf carts. And one of the things they do with these golf carts is they put governors on them, which means that it can't go as fast as it was designed to go. My brother found out a way to override the governor with a golf tee. And we had the fastest golf cart on the island it was evident that we didn't have a governor on our golf cart. Now, one of the things I think goes on in the Christian life is that this whisper, this division is within inside of us, and this thing that whispers inside of us that it's enough just to profess. And that a governor gets put all on our works. And that we don't run free like we were designed to run. We hold back. Now, listen to me. Not all of us are called into bringing orphans into our home, but some are. And all of us should care. Not all of us are 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 called. To go and to work and to help out in the ministry of Celebrate Recovery or Stephen Ministry, not all of us are called, but some are and all of us should care. All of us should desire to be more like Christ. His love, his mercy, his proclamation of truth. And I think a tragedy in our world is because many times believers are believers in name only, in profession only. So when the world looks at us as believers, they just see a bunch of people that believe some really weird things. Or that vote in really weird ways. The tragedy that the world wouldn't see us as people who look like Christ. How would the world view us, brothers and sisters, if no one in and among us was cold or hungry? How would the world view us if our message, we lived out our message that we loved our neighbor as ourself? How would our life be different and the world view us if the governor on your life was controlled by the Holy Spirit? Can we be these kind of people? Can we drown out that other voice? And live the life that God has called us to live. In freedom. And in adventure. And in trust. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God. You are so good. You bring salvation to us. And you equip us for the works that you have called us to. God give us the strength. Give us the strength to be a kind of people. That as the world looks at us. They see your son. It's in his name we pray. Amen. If you'll stand with me. We're going to end by singing the doxology together. And the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You are dismissed.